This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit... Good evening, dear listeners, and salut, Babette. This is our first fresh show for 2018, and we're going to focus this year, if I can help it, on restoration. I want you to hear from the people who are restoring energy that's not toxic, restoring communities that provide a diversity of work and do not just give jobs in coal and gas or flog the land to export beef and lamb. We'll be talking to people in all the sectors covered by the Beyond Zero Emission reports, for example, industry, government, housing, community, energy, concrete, lots more. But tonight, we'll talk about restoring the land and the soil to draw down carbon. I sat with Dr Bob Brown yesterday down by the Yarra, talking about restoring the Tarkine Forest to its job of quietly storing carbon. I'll play just a little bit of that interview first, and then we'll talk to Dean Belfield from Regenerative Farmers about enriching the soil and Justin Borowitz about future-proofing plants. Lastly, we'll move to the (coughs) transport sector where Rebecca Lee wants to tell us about the Electric Vehicle Expo coming up. You can test drive an electric vehicle or an electric bike, and I'll ask her why they don't yet have zero-emissions buses and trucks. Now, Bob Brown told the SLF audience, a packed audience, there were people just at all the doors, you know, and behind the doors trying to crane in to listen to Bob Brown give a very dynamic talk, which I'll bring to you at a later date. Um, Bob Brown told that audience to tune in to 3CR, and he told us how lucky we are in Melbourne to have it. So I hope you who are listening now will all subscribe to 3CR. We're having a subscriber drive and we'd just like you to subscribe. I think it's only $35 a year to be a member. You can vote in in the um, AGM and you can be part of this big project called Community Radio. So if you'd like to do that, mention the Beyond Zero Emissions show that Andy and I are putting to air tonight. And thanks, Andy, for being here. No worries. Always a pleasure. <laughs> he always says no worries. It just makes my heartbeat rest. <laughs> but if you'd like to subscribe to Radio 3CR, Beyond Zero show, call up tomorrow in business hours this number. 03-9419-8377. So that's to subscribe to um, the Radio 3CR. So now we'll go to Bob Brown, who's going to tell us about the Tarkine. I have with me someone who's not afraid of leadership, and everyone's calling out for leadership these days. Dr Bob Brown is the former leader of the Greens Party in Federal Parliament and a veteran of campaigns, many of them, for example, saving the Franklin River in Tasmania and trying to stop whaling with the Sea Shepherd in the Southern Oceans. His Bob Brown Foundation is now defending the Tarkine Forest, known by Indigenous people as Tarkaina, and... They want permanent World Heritage listing and a return to Aboriginal ownership. So, Bob, welcome to the show. I'd like to explore the connection between keeping the old forests in place and giving sort of secure land tenure to Indigenous people. Well, uh, Vivian, the old forests were kept in place for thousands of years under the custodianship of 
Aboriginal Australians and in the case of the Tarkine Aboriginal Tasmanians. The Tarkina people lived along the coastline there and these forests uh, have flourished and they go right back to the age of the dinosaurs. Uh, the dinosaurs were chomping away at those same trees as we have now 65 million years ago. The Aboriginal people have been there for tens of thousands of years. Along, we come in the last 200 years and have started logging and, and not, of course, all over Australia. But its remoteness and uh, the distance from mills and so on kept the Tarkine rainforest, and they were after eucalypts, but this is pure rainforest, intact. Now they're going in to get the eucalypts on the perimeter and 159 coops, that's areas the size of a football field, are targeted with logging, burning to eradicate not just the forest, but all the wildlife in them, as they're doing in East Gippsland and as they're doing in the ranges north of Melbourne. We, as the richest country in the world, should stop that. There is no point to it. It is not as if we're depending on that for toilet paper or for writing paper. That's baloney. We've got pl millions of hectares of plantations in Australia which supply all our wood needs. This destruction of forests is profitable for a very few people and then it's only profitable if the taxpayers are forced to subsidise it. Our taxpayer subsidies become their profits and that's weak politicians in the meantime and we've got to stop voting for the parties that support propping up this destruction. Paul Hawkins said in his book that one of the drawdown strategies that was sort of most has most potential was in fact to protect Indigenous people's rights, not just forest people. I mean, I've heard about it in the Amazon. Some of those people have really been fighting a rearguard action against uh, cattle plantations just encroaching on the forest, but also rangeland nomadic people, Indigenous people are protecting landscapes all over the world and giving them back tenure, he said, was one of the most um, potent ways of drawing down carbon. And I, I was recently in Malaysia and I was shocked to see these massive logs, you know, massive, massive logs driving, being driven down the roads, pouring rain as red mud just bled down from the hills where they are now palm oil plantations. And I met people from, I think it was the Socialist Party there, who were going to jail, just like you have been before, going to jail with the Orang Asli people who are the indigenous and it's the same fight all over the world and I mean, keeping those forests intact, it seems on the global scale, these local battles dramatise it for us but on a global scale, what can you see in the way of moving it towards just indigenous people's rights to manage them? Well Paul Hawkins pointed that out, hundreds of millions of tonnes of carbon are being kept out of the atmosphere and therefore protecting the living environment of the planet for all of us because Indigenous people manage their lands without uh, the destruction that we've brought to them. At my foundation, I and Jenny Weber, our campaign manager and others, have been across to Sarawak and seen the destruction there. On the other hand, the uh, Labor Party in Tasmania paid $22 million to have a huge forest destruction company and come to Tasmania and set up and they're now wanting wood out of the Tarkine forest so they become part of the problem but the intermediaries are people that most people, are, this is are politicians that most people have voted for and if we keep voting for that we get the outcome we, ha we are working hand in hand with Aboriginal people in Tasmania to get back the Tarkine it's just 7% of the island but it is extraordinarily important for them spiritually 
and uh, for the keeping alive of their culture as well as their connections with the past. We're working on that together. She spoke to the audience just now not to despair to be active, to vote differently. But I think a lot of there have been sessions at this festival also saying, well, democracy itself is threatened. People have lost trust in democracy. I think they've lost trust in the media, and now it's become very feral, really. Who, who, who do you trust? And, and, and what well, are see, the institutions that are solid? I, I just don't agree with that. I do agree with Churchill, that, uh, and not on everything by any mm. means, but on the fact that democracy, with all its faults, is better than whatever else we have, oh. which is either anarchy or we're still dictatorships. I'm not saying it's not, but it's just the form we've got now doesn't seem to be working. It's because we as a community, the greater number of people Mm. out there, are voting for the destruction of the planet, eyes wide open, because they want a tax return from the same people who want to destroy their environmental commons. Mm. But as I said in this Sustainable Living Festival talk, Don't despair about that. Mm. Look what's happened in the last 100 years. Whoever 100 years ago or a little more, Mm. well, 100 years ago in Britain would have thought women would ever get the vote. They were right on the outer. This was an idea whose time had not come. Well, it came very fast and it Mm. came because they kicked up a fuss about it and stood their ground on it. Same with equal marriage in this country. Talking to um, activists just 15 years ago, they said, no, we can't change that. It's just the the time's not here. Well, we have changed it because people became knowledgeable about it, engaged in it. Now, is the the safety of the planet, and in particular in this wealthiest country on earth, the environmental commons, which is fundamental, rock, solid, foundation of our existence on this planet Mm. is not guaranteed by us nobody else is going to do it the exploiters will have a field day that's why i went to the high court last year with jessica hoyt to challenge the new tough environmental laws which were out of kilter in tasmania so the good environmentalists were being arrested and and threatened with 10 years Mm. or four years jail we we have to take this on and celebrating the planet is Mm. the starting point if we give way to uh, depression, if we suppress our anger about mm. what's going on, we'll be in trouble. But if we convert that anger into action, even if it's just giving to activist environmental groups, mm. very important that you can see they are taking action. I, I began my talk here with looking at the gecko and the environmental groups out in East Gippsland who are prepared mm. and, uh, to get out there at night, to, to be threatened by arrest and have protected areas where the greater glider, this fabulous animal, which is otherwise headed to extinction, are, they've they've actually saved ground by Mm. being there. Mm. Now, who wouldn't want to support that? You know, we can enjoy life on this beautiful planet, but ultimately it's self-defeating if we allow the beauty of the planet to be destroyed in our lifetimes. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about environment, as in forests, seas, whales, you know, like the natural environment. There's also, in climate change, the problem of fossil fuels, and there's still a huge battle going on in Australia for new coal mines in New South Wales, for example, and you mentioned Adani in Queensland and all of that Galilee Basin. There's still a possibility that that will be mined, and some of it's in the most beautiful farmland. I've just recently been up to the Hunter Valley, for example, and this pristine valley called Bailong Valley hasn't been dug yet. Yes, but it's, Have you been there? And it's owned nearly completely by... It's a ghost town. It's owned by the mine. Um, I also went to Wala where there's four families, four houses that are inhabited and the rest is owned by the mine and they have been taken to court and the New South Wales laws are still draconian I don't think 
you know, they, they were hoping that your court case in the High Court would sort of shelter them, but it's being postponed now till June. Bev Smiles is, stands to have seven, seven years imprisonment. I hope she doesn't That's get it. That's because people voted Labor or Liberal <laughs> that, uh, and National Party. Yeah. And, and you can't disconnect those things. Right. And if people keep voting for that, then good-hearted people like Bev Smiles, mm. well, what a fa- fabulous, patriotic Australian, mm. thinking about the future of this country, faced with draconian penalties because people keep voting for parties that bring that anti-community, anti-environmental legislation in at the behest of the big corporations with whom they sup and have dinner. Mm. We're going to be very, very serious Mm. about voting at every election, at every level, if we're going to save this planet. Electing a Green to join Adam Bant in the national parliament here would be a huge statement. Mm. Uh, Will people do that? Or will they give in to local... Pre- and, and beware the candidate who says, I'm opposed to Adani, even though my party isn't. Mm. The Labor Party 100% requires people to abide by its vote on the floor of Parliament. Mm. And so I, I, saw, I saw, while I was in the Senate, people who were opposed to mistreatment of asylum seekers in the public arena, mm. time and time again, vote for that mistreatment. Mm. Same with Adani. And we must here require that the party, not just the candidate, but Mm. the party be opposed. Big question here on Bill Shorten. Will he change and become opposed to the Adani mine and and the consequent threats you get from locals in Queensland who Mm. want the gravy train to keep going at the destruction of jobs in their own region on the Barrier Reef? Thousands of jobs at stake mm. there. It's daft, mm. but there it is. So uh, here's Melbourne's opportunity to make a great contribution towards ending coal being exported or burnt in this country mm. and towards that clean future, sustainable yeah. future, so possible, coming anyway, <laughs> but which we can bring about much faster, yes. as Paul Hawker explained at this Sustainable Living Festival That's with his great book, Drawdown. I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening to the same. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. And if you're subscribing to 3CR, please mention Beyond Zero Emissions if you like this show. Well, we've heard there from Dr. Bob Brown talking about conservation of forests and celebrating nature, even conserving ourselves and honouring people who get together to stop destructive practices like Bev Smiles. The next speaker is Dean Belfield. He's from the Regenerative Farmers Movement and he is hosting a masterclass with Paul Hawker next week. He's going to talk about farming practices that draw down carbon. So welcome, Dean. Thanks very much. 
Dean, Paul Hawkins said at the Sustainable Living Festival that the feedback we're getting from the climate now is a gift to us. He said it was a message that we need to get to work. Tell us what is the work of regenerative farming? <laughs> That's a great question. <clears throat> um, firstly, I'd like to provide a context there and that um, regenerative farming as to think on what we might call sustainable agricultural, sustainable farming is, is about actually recovering um, the state of the land to the condition where it once was and beyond that, not just to keep sustained things as they currently are, because at the moment we're actually engaged with a lot of harmful, damaging, destructive practices in the what was otherwise known as the industrial agricultural uh, system. And whichever way you look, wherever you look and by whatever measure, um, the state of our soils and the health of our soils is deteriorating. So it's actually about reversing that trend. And so there's several questions there. One is, what is what do we call regenerative agriculture and regenerative farming? Um, and secondly, might be, well, what do we actually do? What's involved in doing that? Yes, well, that's what I want to know. Perhaps you can talk a bit about that after the next question. I, I heard your talk at the Sustainable uh, Living Festival and you showed us some photos. And just for the listeners, they were a photo with it, like a fence going down the middle with two paddocks. And on one side, you could see rather patchy and dry land and on the other, thick perennial grasses. And I wanted to ask you, why is so much Australian land looking so neglected? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, principally there is not a good level of understanding amongst people people in general. In fact, it's very poor amongst the general population, but um, certainly amongst some landholders in terms of what happens below the surface of the soil. You know, the grass that we found, what's the, what is the biological activity there? What, how important that, why is that important? What, what components, what elements of that are absolutely critical to maintaining, maintaining a healthy um, biome, a healthy ecosystem. Because if, we have, if we're not looking after that, just like if we're not looking after our bodies well, then we'll start to get sick and then we'll start to see the symptoms over time and then we get into this repair mode and survival mode. So, <clears throat> so when you look at either side of a fence line like that, it's actually, and that's why it's so great to look at it because you can assume that the soils are pretty much identical, the climate's pretty much identical, um, or at one time they were, meaning that the climate might be the same either side of the fence line, but the where there is a variation that's reflected in the different type of vegetation that's grown on the left side versus the right side, it's all to do with the management practices of the landholder. So and some you... landholders are very well informed and, and are very switched on and really understand what happens beneath the soil or in the soil, and others are treating it as um, an inert system, if you like, that requires inputs the whole time. It's almost like continuing to support the system on life support, whereas the other is actually regenerating, building and working with nature, not as though nature is some foreign object. Tell us just one or two of the things you do to bring, bring up that rich grass and that resilient-looking land. Um, well... Okay, a good example would be that if you are looking at a, a grazing regime and most oh. livestock of some sort or other on it, so if that's the type of country that you have as distinct from horticulture or cropping, 
what you'd be doing there is to um, build the appropriate infrastructure that's going to provide the water as you need it and where you need it, have, have the appropriate fence lines uh, where you need it, typically electric fences because that gives you a lot greater flexibility and mobility. And then, then you use livestock in conjunction with your grasses that actually support the right types of improvement and growth and biological progress with those grasses in conjunction with the soil. So that an example of that is around what we call managed grazing. So you might bring all your sheep or cattle together in a very dense mob but only keep them in a paddock, which is by your definition managed by electric fences. It's a small area, but you keep them in there for a short period of time. So it's high impact, short period of time and long recovery. Right, so then can, you move, can, move them off and then that land grows back again and underneath the soil the carbon is stored because the roots have not been munched down. Well, what happens there? When, you, when you've got the high impact, you've got the, both two things happening or several number of things happening, which is why it's so exciting actually, is you've got the hooves of the animals um, disturbing the surface of the soil. And when, like anything, if, if you disturb the surface of the soil, whether it's in your backyard or anywhere, it's like scratching, the, you are stimulating the seeds in the soil and you are, you are breaking the, 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 if you like, the cycle of protection, meaning that you're exposing those seeds to activity, they wake up and all they need is moisture and they'll start to respond. Um, at the same time, you've got the mouths of the animals, which when they eat the grass, and remembering that the amount of biology above the ground is equivalent to the amount of biology under the ground on average over time. So if you continue what they call set grazing, which is what Western um, farmers and agricultural systems have typically done, the cow will continue or the sheep will continue to identify the nice bit of grass and as long as that's growing, it'll continue to feed on that. And as the grass gets shorter and shorter and shorter, the plant basically says, well, I don't need my roots that go 300 um, millimetre into the ground or 200 because... They serve no purpose any longer. I've only got five millimetres of grass above, therefore I'll shorten my root system. So they drop off the root systems and then you get a hot day and the plant can't recover, it dies. Okay. So, well, uh, Dean, a lot of people are talking about <clears throat> monetizing this now, um, you know, this <laughs> growth under the ground that no one can see but that you can say is carbon sequestration. And if I wanted baseline data on my farm, just pretend I have a farm and I ask yeah. you that I want to sequester some carbon, I want to get credit for that maybe in 10 years' time, but I want the baseline data. How would you help me and what would it cost me? Okay, good question. Um, so to get baseline data on your farm, you do it because you need a point in time as a reference and you do it in accordance with the Australian government standards uh, because that then is recognised and when you attribute dollars to the carbon that you are seeking to grow in your soil, it is it becomes bankable because it's reliable, it's predictable and it's believable. So it's a standard that's recognised. So you, you basically, we would go out to work with the farmer, do a simple due diligence exercise to make sure that they really do want to proceed down this path and they understand what's involved um, once and, and understand prior management practices and future management practices. So we go and then in accordance with the methodology is drill a number of cores across a carbon estimation area, which might be like a big paddock or several paddocks combined, yeah. and those cores will go anywhere from the 300 millimetres into the ground down to a thousand or a metre into the ground and we then composite them, which means we mix them up in a particular way as described by CSIRO and the standards that gives you the most 
um, accurate representation of the soil across that area, which means you minimise variability, uh, which gives you a truer reading of the carbon in your soil at that point in time. And what would it cost? Um, typically, the costing is all dependent on the um, the number of how far you've got to travel, the, how long it takes. If it's tough soil, it can take longer and so on. So best case scenario might be anywhere upwards from $5,000. For example, that's a round figure. I don't want yep. to be held no, liable no. to that. <laughs> but but if you if you can get in and out with a farm, into the farm, you've done all the proprietary work because there's a lot of upfront yeah. office work in terms of developing soil sampling plans, which has to be approved as well. And then you can go and do one farm, a carbon estimation area in one day. Then you send it off to the laboratory, which is all part of the cost. And then that comes back and then you've got to generate a report and provide that to the farmer and put that on your files for the government in due course. I'm asking you this because I think it's something that we're moving towards. If we don't want to flog the land, if we want to enrich it, we've got to value the carbon. And there was an article in uh, the Saturday paper, which I like very much, by Mike Seacombe. It was called La La Land Management, and he showed how millions of dollars have now been spent from the Emissions Reduction Fund, uh, given to farmers just not to cut down trees. It was just not to cut them down, and in, at the end of the contract, it might be 20 years they could cut them down then, and meanwhile... Then, hello? Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Then yes. They, yeah. would, they could continue with their sort of industrialised agriculture, increasing the greenhouse gas, gases, decreasing the soil health and the water retention and all of that. They could just do that and get this windfall from the ERF. And I wonder, do you think government policy to reduce emissions from the land needs a bit of a rethink? A great question. Again, um, I think we have to be very careful in how we align policy with the outcomes we're looking for <clears throat> and then reward people. Um, the avoided deforestation clearly has a history based on land clearing over time and what the government's trying to do is to reverse or to halt the decline and reward people by keeping those forests in place, which allows the carbon sequestration or drawdown to continue, as distinct from uh, a farmer having a permit, which he might have held for some time, that would allow him one day to clear that. And, of course, as soon as you do that, you release the emission. So it's almost like putting a finger in the dike and, and valuing and saying it's important we stop this getting any worse and we'll hold it. Um, so that's quite different from what we're talking about, which is actually building soil carbon uh, that allows productivity gains, biological gains, and the drop-off and all the inputs um, the fertiliser and energy and emissions and so on that actually is degrade or degrading the soil. So we're all about reversing it, hence regeneration. And, and to monetize that is really, really important because if there was a single key performance indicator about the health of our soil, almost universally now around the world, people are saying it's soil carbon. Yeah, and I'm sure it increases the productivity of their land. But is this starting to happen in Australia now that people are, getting a cash payment for this kind of carbon farming? Look, um, it's early days. There are an increasing number of properties that have had baselines undertaken. Um, it's a slow process, meaning that once you've had a baseline undertaken, then you have to develop an implementation plan that says, this is what I'm going to do. It's a series of steps and activities um, into the future that, that basically outlines what I'm doing that's new because if you're going to continue to do what you're always doing, the government says, well, you don't need any money for this. But if you're going to change your practices, tell us what it's going to cost. And if that fits within the auction system and the auction model and it's competitively priced, 
yeah. then there's a good chance you will win a, a contract yep. to go and build the carbon. But you, you do not get paid until you've actually delivered, verifiably delivered, yep. an increase in carbon in your soil. Okay, well, thank you for telling us that. That's something we'll come back to you in later years, I think. Uh, we've been talking now to Dean Belfield from Regenerative Australian Farmers, and he's having a masterclass with Paul Hawken next week. You might not know the name Paul Hawken, listeners, but he's written this marvellous book called Drawdown. Dean, just tell us quickly, what are the details? Um, the details of the masterclass are that it's... Firstly, it's happening um, at so, the NAB building in Docklands at 700 um, Burke Street, level 3. It's from 1.30 to 3.30 in the afternoon. Uh, it consists of Paul Hawken giving a keynote speech with follow-up with the Q&A and then turning it across to a panel of experts after that. And what's the um, date? The date is the 23rd, which is Friday week, 23rd okay. of February. Okay. And the whole focus of this event is very much about engaging the business sector, the investment sector, the government sector and the policy makers, along with the um, regenerative agricultural sector, to work together to identify those pathways forward. Okay, super. Thank you very much for that, Dean, and thanks for all the work you're doing. So that was Dean Belfield, and now we're going um, on to talk to Justin Leibovitz, um, uh, sorry, Borovitz, um, while I'm waiting for him to come on, um, I'll, I'll just ask you again, listeners, to please think about subscribing to 3CR. We're having a subscriber drive. It only costs $35, and it helps this station thrive. Okay, Justin, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Yeah. Thank you for participating in this show. Now, I, Justin Borovitz is a landscape uh, restoration guru. He's a plant biologist and... Um, it's con- we're continuing this theme of restoration, Justin. I've told the li- listeners that we're, this year we're going to just look at restoration in all sorts of systems. Uh, you're a professor at ANU, and your research is in helping plants adapt to shifting climates. Um, the aim of your Centre of Excellence in Plant Biology is apparently to restore global crops and woodlands, so that's a big, ambitious goal. Tell us a bit about your centre. Sure. Um, well, I'm not really a landscape uh, regeneration guru. I think Dean <laughs> uh, Dean's probably farther along than I am. But we sit in the Argyr Tower and try to model it and try to scale things that are working and try to... Um, well, our center is about uh, plant energy biology, and that's photosynthesis. Um, and then, then there's plants use energy to grow as well, so we want them to be as efficient as they can at doing that. Um, we do a lot of genetics as well, so is that enough introduction? Oh, yes. I, I'd like okay. to know about this new plan you've got for a precision uh, regener- uh, regeneration station near Mount Stromlo to help forests and croplands to sequester carbon. What's your what's that project about? So this is just at the uh, sort of design stage right now, and it's, it's to try to deploy... Um, all the technologies that we're talking about and use best practices, demonstrate best practices, water harvesting, rebuilding soil. It's an old uh, woodland that was cleared maybe almost a century ago, and it's been just run as typical pasture. And I think that's, you know, it's it's not sustainable. It's certainly not regenerative. We need to get back to that forest that was there. We need to improve the soil carbon. And what is the fastest way and the best way to do that? And so... 
Uh, that's what we're beginning. It's got a lot of the precision part is to use uh, high-tech, like precision agriculture, um, monitor the soil quality regularly at high resolution. Um, maybe Dean will be able to help us with that. I think that's, that technology to do that is, uh, is evolving quickly, and then we can learn about not only the best practices but the return on investment, so to speak, so that uh, we'd be able to monitor. You know, ultimately, my site here would just be one that the university uses, and we would get you know a build out of hundreds of sites across the country and across the world, so that we can learn what are the regional solutions, not just um, you know the anecdotes that worked once on one farm, but the the way to produce. Uh, a lot of biomass above and below ground, and then how to convert that and capture that into long-term storage, whether it's with biochar or enhanced rock weathering oh, yeah. or even timber products and things like that. Then we need to not compete with uh, agriculture, so somehow uh, we should be growing crops in that same uh, space, and so we'll have experimental uh, croplands as well and to see how they interact with, with forests and and pasture. So it's basically an agroforestry model that has a forest component, a pasture component, and a crop component. And we're trying to figure out how to build the soil below all three of those systems. Yeah. You know, I love the sound of that because I feel really sorry for Australian livestock when I go back and forth by train from Sydney to Melbourne. A lot of livestock don't seem to have enough trees to sit right. under. In the hot sun, you see about 50 cows under one tree in this massive, massive paddock. And I think, gee, we could have, you know, hedges there and trees and just, just the animal welfare. That would be a big improvement. But listen, to keep on track, um, in the draw... Well, let me just, on that yeah. same topic, you yeah. know, Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown, which yeah. is probably the best way to describe this, uh, this whole uh, new way of looking at the world. He's got a, a big chapter on silvopasture, which yes. is cows and trees and they're doing it all around the world, but not enough. And so when I got to that chapter, it's in the top ten solutions, I thought, you know, this is perfect for Australia. And oh. people are experimenting with it, but it hasn't, you know, gone to scale. And maybe part of that is we need very accurate numbers on how much improvement, how long does it take, how much money does it cost, so we can scale it. Yeah, well, I, I read a book, and I did a program about it once before, uh, based on Eric Tonsmeyer's book called right. Carbon Farming, and he thought silver culture was the best bang for your buck. You know, if you're going to invest, it's quite expensive to put in all the trees and protect them, but then you get these benefits. But look, coming back to... You're ahead of the curve, uh, <laughs> Vivian, because Eric actually wrote that chapter for Paul Hawken. He's oh, did one he? of the fellows. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And so we're starting to talk to him and, and oh. Chad, the the uh, the guy at Drawdown that's done all the modeling. Oh, I'd love so to we're, interview we're him. In their group. I read sure. his book in the library, and I just thought carbon farming—that's what I want to know about. And he, he really struggled with it too, because you know it's a fiery debate about producing meat. I mean, too much land seems to be devoted to producing meat for some people and the rest of the people are not getting enough protein and so on. Yeah, he, as you and said, it is a fiery debate because yeah. people are, you know, they're vegetarians or not or vegans and they feel strongly. Yeah. I think it's a balance and we definitely have way too many animals in yeah. the world and on the land and zero might not be the right number. No. But no. Uh, somewhat less than what we've got now and yeah. I think at the right time in the right place, animals can be helpful, but I think we're we're generally degrading our, our land with too many. Yeah. Well, the next question is about another sort of moderation, because in Drawdown they found that just reducing fertilizer use 
would avoid emissions of many gigatons of CO2 globally. And I looked at that and he said, look, no investment was required, just less fertiliser. And I wanted to know how your precision data, you know, doing this very regionalised precision data gathering could help farmers fine-tune how much fertiliser they use, how much water, and cut down eventually the mass of fertiliser. Sure. It's... uh I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I mean, some of the, it's almost a revolution now in precision agriculture. It's sweeping, I guess, through mainstream industrial agriculture because it saves them money by not putting extra fertilizer where they don't need it. You know, they've always been recommended to go at a, you know, so many tons per uh, 10 hectares or whatever, 100 kilos. It's It's big numbers that they dump on whether they don't needed or not. So precision is set testing the soil and adding just the right amount in just the right location and also at just the right time. You can put on too much early and it washes away and might even burn the plants. And if you just come back later when they actually need it, there's a lot of new uh, science around monitoring nitrogen status from drones. So you can kind of look into the leaf and in the infrared there's a reflection of, of nitrogen bands and you can see when they're getting hungry. So you can feed them, you know, at just the right place and at just the right time and not waste it. So on our uh, farm we're sort of proposing to to have a, it might be a closed loop irrigation system, kind of like a greenhouse where you catch the uh, spring water coming off your farm at the rain and that might have nutrients in it um, and then you can pump that up and recycle it so um, there's a lot of opportunities for nutrient use efficiency and it's, and much of the world is over uh, applying nutrients and then uh, Africa and other countries have not enough nutrients so again, it's like animals you got to find that right balance and use it as efficiently as possible and this is where big data and big science and sensors can have a uh, an impact that we yeah. can we can get the right uh, amount at uh, at the right time. Well, that's why I was interested to interview you. Look, the industrial scale agriculture that we've seen develop really only since the Second World War, I think, on the scale it is now. <clears throat> it yeah. seems to mine the earth, and it reduces the number of crops they favour. They have elite varieties of seeds apparently that only work in the best conditions and many farmers can't afford the chemical inputs and we don't have the best conditions a lot of the time and climate change is going to see a lot of variable conditions and um you know they've been it's a very productive and very uh risk you know it could collapse easy too yeah. so it's well it's a profitable industry but they've been you know in a lot of countries where they had the green revolution there's been dramatic food shortages and farmer suicides and you know, really, I think that model has got to be hmm, phased out or rethought. And I wondered what your response is to that, industrial agriculture. Uh, it's generally uh, probably abused. We're doing too much. That's the short answer. But it doesn't mean that the technology is to blame. You know, it's it's the way we use it that people have just been maximizing whether it's nutrients or monocultures, we can get the right variety for the north slope and for the south slope and for the wet part. And so one part of precision agriculture is to put different varieties in different parts of the field and different fertilizer in different parts of the field. So I think industrial agriculture is going to mature a little bit. There's a lot of pressure to to do better and, and reduce inputs. But we need to diversify. We need to start from the soil and build up. And there's a lot of severely degraded land that industrial agriculture has either created or walked away from. And so 
we need a, a regenerative agriculture that is high tech and that can scale and that banks will loan on yeah. and and there are some leading you know pioneers out there and if we can you know sort of put their secrets into a formula if you will and yeah. and see where else that would work in the world and help uh distribute that research with you know examples on the ground then i think we're headed in the right direction okay well thank you very much for talking to yeah. us so well, i hope we can come back to you later on to hear how that project sure. goes mm-hmm. so Thanks we've for Thank you. We've been talking to Professor Justin Borovitz from ANU. And now, listeners, we're running a lot of interviews tonight. We're going to talk about transport. We've got Rebecca Lee on the phone, and Rebecca is (coughs) the person who's been organising an expo about electric vehicles. It's next Sunday, the 18th of February. Um, Her company is called Rev Bikes, and you can Google the event at evexpo.com. Org. So if you want, if you don't catch the details now, just look up evexpo.org. So congratulations, Rebecca. This looks like a family-friendly event on Sunday, but please tell the listeners where is the International Karting Centre in Port Melbourne? I've never heard of it. Ah, yes. Uh, it's an interesting one. You've probably seen it if you're driving towards the city on the Westgate Bridge as you're coming off the bridge and looking towards the city. If you look sort of straight down off the bridge, you can see the karting complex. It's an open-air track uh, just on the city side, the very city end of Port Melbourne. So it's a, quite a central venue, just 4Ks from uh, Southern Cross Station. Okay, so it's the corner of Todd Road and Cook Street, Port Melbourne. That's right. That's right. Okay, you'll be surprised to know I don't drive, so <laughs> I'm interviewing you. Completely, oh, good on you. Completely clear of knowledge about all the exciting things that are there, and I couldn't come and test drive anything because I don't know how to. Can listeners come and test drive? <laughs> no, there's plenty of <laughs> there's plenty of vehicles that you don't need to drive. There's a there's a large focus on two wheeled and uh, single person transport options oh. as well. It's not all about cars. We like to encourage people to think outside the four wheeled box okay. anyway. Tell us about Rev Bikes. Uh, yes, yeah, so Rev's, I've been running uh, Rev Bikes for what, eight or nine years now. Um, I started uh, after working in solar power and I wanted to create a solution that allowed people to move about utilising their solar energy that they were capturing and uh, short of the electric cars, of making a real impact in Australia at that time. Well, they're still still only seeping in gradually, really, but uh, I wanted to allow people a transition technology, uh, which is somewhere between a bike and a car, and I found electric bikes to be uh, the solution. There weren't many available in Australia at that time, and I realised you could actually build your own normal bike into an electric bike, which has a lot of benefits in terms of recycling, not wasting a bike you've already got. Mm. Uh, it's a lot cheaper. You can customise the system to do actually what you want uh, if you choose to uh, ignore the law, for example, and you want something that actually pulls a trailer up hills and that sort of thing. You can do that when you actually upgrade an existing bike with a, with a kit. So, yeah, I've been pretty passionate about that over the last eight, nine years. And, uh that's um, that led me to the greater interest in electric vehicles generally. 
where as soon as I can afford a Tesla, I will put my name down for one. <laughs> in the meantime, I actually like getting about with the wind in my hair anyway. Yeah, well, yes. And look, you're by, um, you've got someone here who's the fastest woman motorbike rider in the world, and I'd love to know about her, Eva Harkinson. Um, I couldn't interview her, yeah. but, you know, tell us about her. So what a fantastic inspiration. Here's a woman who wants to actually show people that um, electric cars aren't just, or bikes aren't just something for the uh, faint-hearted, I guess. Um, she wants to demonstrate that technology can solve some of these problems and she's designed, built and raced the fastest motorbike uh, out on the out on the sand dunes uh, in the desert, wherever it is out in the States. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, she's, she's, done, um, she's done the hard yards in actually converting people's thinking around electric in, a, in what is traditionally a, a loud, noisy sport. Uh, it doesn't need to be. <laughs> and so, yeah, we're very excited to have Eva come and uh, speak. She's actually doing two presentations at the event on Sunday. Oh, don't tell me they're silent. <laughs> no, electric vehicles are not silent. They they have a different sound. It's not as loud as a petrol motor, but they do have a distinct whir. Mm. Um, you'll have to come along to hear it. Really. <laughs> I can't the motor- it without, <laughs> without making. I think motorbike riders are a horrible hazard. You know the noise they make around. So electric motorbikes, quiet. They're much quieter. Uh, so there's a. Uh, a friend of mine who pops over, he's got an electric scooter, it's like a Vespa, um, and the, the, one of the differences is there's no gears, uh, he doesn't have to change gears, so what you get is the, the sound effect, I'll try to imitate it, it's sort of like he takes off and goes, kind of something like that, um, but the volume is nowhere near and there's no vibration the way that you get with Harleys or something like oh, that, um, but it's a, yeah. <laughs> you have to sell sell it to a different demographic, I think. Um, look, you, you're going to have government people there, like Lily D'Ambrosio and Senator Janet Rice, who spoke last week on the Beyond Zero Friday show. Listeners, you can listen to the podcast right. if you just look up that. But um, does this mean that governments are going to fast track some charging stations that we need? Look, we're not we're not certain. To be honest, I think uh, charging stations uh, is a small piece of the puzzle. Most 90% of charging of electric cars happens while people sleep in their garage. Um, so charging stations, yeah, um, a lot of people, buyers are hesitant to, to jump into the market until there's, I guess, more uh, more readily available or visually available parking stations. But... Uh, I think what we're really aiming to push government on are some more incentives around um, making uh, price comparisons for electric vehicles. We, we are seeing some car companies that are trying to match their electric vehicle prices to the same models that are petrol. Um, so um, I won't mention any car company names mm-hmm. here, but uh, if they were our sponsors, I might do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, we, we definitely want to see some of the incentives that are available in other countries being started to roll out in Australia. There's a, there's a council for electric vehicles, the Electric Vehicle Council, and, and they are recommending, again, they're speaking at our event too, they are recommending we adopt some of the incentives which include like tariff reductions on electric vehicles, 
uh, and other um, perhaps upfront discounts. So it might be a grant or the sorts of things we saw which kicked off the solar industry, for example, yeah. um, where you got rebates and that sort of thing. So the early adopters are rewarded and, uh, and there's not a price barrier that electric cars don't have to be so much more expensive up front because that does deter people even though the ongoing costs are so, so, so much lower. No maintenance, very little money spent on charging mm. comparatively. Mm. Um, but the upfront cost is still a barrier. That's what we'd like, like to see some traction on yeah. from government. Yeah, I interviewed someone from Norway about two years ago and he told me of all the incentives they've got in Norway so that they've got a big uptake. Oh, fabulous. Mm. Listen, mm. I, you know, yeah. I, I don't drive, I don't actually like cars and motorbikes and I can't help thinking of mm-hmm. three people in my family over the years who've died in motorbike accidents and in my travels I've noticed an explosion of motorbikes in poor countries like Laos. You can see four people and a baby on one bike and there are horrific accidents Mm. and I think there's been a massive explosion in that without the, the safety and the helmets and the ambulances and all that that should go with it but I think climate change is driving us to think more clearly about petrol driven vehicles so maybe they'll be phased out but what about public transport, you know, big electric buses or big electric trucks, which I think in poorer countries are much more appropriate than everybody having one of these little motorbikes. Absolutely. So why, do, Absolutely. why, why yeah, is it look, so slow to see those? You know, we don't see them. Well, you'd be surprised. And uh, we, we did have a uh, sponsor who unfortunately had to pull out uh, who had an electric bus. So there are companies in Australia rolling out electric buses. Adelaide are trying a few at the moment uh, and there's some in Queensland and Sydney. Uh, airport buses that run around the airports are mostly electric. So there are these vehicles out there. Uh, we are having an electric truck who, which has been built by a Melbourne-based company that's received funding from the Victorian government. So there are all sorts of vehicles out there that we're not even aware of um, for the majority. And, uh, yes, I t- completely agree with you. We do need to start taking taking these um, these other vehicles off the road as well. It's... Uh, if we if we do sort of, I always visualised when we got to peak oil that there'd be, you know, there'd be other solutions for small commuting vehicles and uh, petrol and diesel would be used with just where necessary with the large vehicles, the machinery and that mm. sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I guess it's just we it's just a matter of um, range. The trucks and buses uh, tends to be an issue with range. So the cost of the batteries to set them up to run all day um, and not to take a full night or so to to recharge again because that uh, is obvious downtime. So I guess there's there's a bit of catching up that the EV industry needs to and the battery technology is evolving quite quickly but it is it is something that takes takes time and uh, the, the cost is also higher at this stage but again it's dropping very quickly mm-hmm. do you think climate change is a motivator or something a driver for people to transfer over to these electric vehicles I think that's the main motivator uh, oh. I, I I think that uh, a lot of people who are investing the money as early adopters, they're doing it because they can no longer stomach driving an ice age car, as we call <laughs> them, ice being internal combustion engine. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, mainly an environmental decision for the owners currently. Um, there is a bit of prestige, of course, involved in owning a Tesla. If you can afford it, then there's a bit of status cred to it as well. But... 
Um, I think most of the early adopters, it's an environmental decision because the cost is still on par or higher. It's not an economic decision yet, mm-hmm. um, but that's not far away. Well, I think a lot, a lot of things. I've said that the programs this year, I want to do all the programs that focus on restoration. And one of the things I think with petrol cars is health, the health impact of them. Um, you know, the, if you have little children and you're wheeling them along in a little pusher, you know, they're breathing in really very bad particulate matter and it's, yeah. it's irretrievable change to their brain. So I think that, and because of the great weight of number of cars that we have on the roads, I feel that um, restoration of healthy air is one thing, restoration of uh, sort of driving that doesn't, you know, damage things so badly in the environment as the climate. <clears throat> I think that's that's kind of the thing that I'm interested in. Um, mm. Yeah, a lot of the people I deal with are also interested in not contributing to traffic congestion. Yeah. So if we start looking not just at cars but electric bikes um, and motorbikes, I guess, as well fit into this mm. category. But electric bikes, you don't have to ride on the road. You can follow some beautiful river, river paths to get from the outskirts of Melbourne into the city and, and around. Mm. Um, and you're also getting the added benefit of doing some exercise. So mm. instead of being stuck in traffic, sitting there, stressing about the time, having to arrive and then find parking and pay for it and all the rest of it. You're actually getting exercise. So you're out there in a in a mode of active transport rather than being inactive um, and depending on who else is on the road or how late the train or bus is running. Um, you're not depending on all those things. You've got independent and active transport, which is going to actually help the social condition of people and the health condition of people as well. Mm. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. I've enjoyed talking to you, even though I'm never going to be, you know, going in one of those vehicles, I don't think. But really, it's been very enjoyable and you're very well motivated. So tell us again, for the listeners, where and when to find the Electric Vehicle Expo. Sure. So it's on this Sunday, Sunday the 18th of February. It starts at 9 o'clock, runs till 4.30 in the afternoon. It's at the corner of Todd Road and Cook Street in Port Melbourne. Uh, and uh, we are, you're able to find us at the website. And I just want to correct what you did say before. Oh, okay. You missed out the AU at the end. Oh, yes, so it's, okay. Um, evexpo.org.au. Okay. There's a lot of information there on the presentations, the vehicles you can test drive, all of that sort of thing. It sounds like great fun. There's something for everyone there. there. Yes. All right. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Good luck with the expo. Thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Listeners, now, that's, that's taken us over a huge amount of territory, hasn't it? But I'd like to thank our guests tonight. We had Bob Brown at the beginning talking to me at the Sustainable Living Festival where he gave an incredibly dynamic speech and then told us all to listen to 3CR. So don't forget, subscribe to 3CR. Um, and then we had Dean Belfield from the Regenerative Australian Farmers and Justin Borovitz from ANU, where he's a plant biologist and working on that more precision help for farmers to really regenerate the land. And last we went to the transport sector and talked to Rebecca Lee about Sunday's uh, coming event, which is um, the EV Expo, the Electric Vehicle Expo and Conference at the Karting Complex in Port Melbourne. So it starts at 9am. 
this coming Sunday. I'd also like to thank Andy, who's supported me all through the holidays, you know, little messages saying, yes, no probs, fine, yes, no worries. And I just love that because I, I stress about this before as we're leading up to the first shows, but it's all worked out okay and he makes it go really well. Um, so thanks to Andy and also behind the scenes to Roger who does the pod, podcast and uh, thanks to 3CR for supporting us and I think we have time now for a little um, bit of music and another subscriber drive advertisement. <laughs> 